Affiliate Friends, and welcome to The World Transformed. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm doing great as well, and uh, glad to be joined again by Steve Wells. We've got Steve Wells back with us, part three of our three-part show. Steve is a global futurist, a keynote speaker, and he's COO of Fast Future, which is a professional foresight firm. We've been talking with him over the last couple shows about his new book, A Very Human Future, Enriching Humanity in a Digitized World. Steve, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much indeed. Great to be back again, Phil. So, Steve, I wanted to get into chapter part five of the book, Business Work and the workplace, and one of the chapters in there is called Blockchain and the New World of Work. Let's talk a little bit about how blockchain can make a difference in the world of work and how it's going to be impacting business in the near future. Well, I think one of the ways that uh, I can already see uh, blockchain pay, playing a role is as a unique record about, first of all, my educational achievement, secondly, my work experience, and thirdly, the developmental interventions I've made during my work experience. The thing about the blockchain is that that could, on the assumption it's protected by some kind of bio um, lock, um, be absolutely clearly my information. Um, that information could be used by me, by um, a recruitment agency, by people that might be interested in using my services to make sure that I'm best qualified, best suited to do a particular task, be that a project, be it a kind of a staff job, um, be that a contract. So I can see how blockchain would really help me ensure that it's you know that, that my skills are most clearly matched to a potential uh, a potential employer so i can really so see it being used that, that uh, would be just to explore that a little bit that would be accomplished through some kind of smart contract version of certification of skills or some kind of smart certification of having accomplished something i, mean, I guess the question is how would that be any better than say the way it works today well, I, I think with the validation and with the access to the particular blockchain, which in itself is secured and validated, you know, once you've got those processes in place that ensure it's me that has access to my record, um, then those protocols that sit around that can ensure that anyone accessing that can also trust that it's actually about me. And it's that same kind of validation, it's that same kind of open ledger approach, if you like, that would allow us to track all sorts of things um, all around the world from our health records to um, a container that's being shipped from China to the US, you know, the ability of, uh, of this technology to provide that access with those appropriate validations you know, in place is, is quite extraordinary, I think. And with that comes also the possibility that we kind of disintermediate people's skill sets, their whole life, as it were, their full value proposition from an organization necessarily or potentially. That is to say, if you need someone who can do X, you don't necessarily have to go to a corporation that employs people that do that. Now you can just deal directly with that individual and know that you're getting exactly what you look for, right? So do we move towards people becoming more free agents than employees? 
Well, certainly there's, there's enough evidence to suggest that uh, the gig economy is growing significantly and will continue to grow. Right. So maybe we will see some of those gig economy platforms uh, like Fiverr, for example, actually go onto the blockchain. Maybe we'll see individuals subscribe to a blockchain rather than to what we think of as, at the moment as a conventional recruitment agency. The same might be true of people that run agencies for contract workers. So you can see how there may be a series of blockchains that people would subscribe to both as a service provider, but also then as a service user. Exactly, exactly. So that, that really will be a transformative technology. Well, let's, let's move on to part six, where you talk about industry transformation and disruption. And there's a chapter called The Future of Energy Reinvented. So what are some of the things we can be thinking about where energy is concerned that maybe we, we haven't given as much thought as we might have? Well, I think in terms of energy reinvented, we're, we're, we're looking at a number of things here. I think we're looking not just at how energy is generated, but also potentially how it's, uh, how it's distributed. So increasingly, we see smaller players um, setting up, for example, solar farms, wind farms that can contribute energy to, as we have in the UK, to the national grid. Um, increasingly, we're looking at new ways of using, for example, wearables um, to create energy to power um, the devices we might carry on us or we might wear on us. We're seeing new ways of creating energy by using the, the vibration from pavements, from roads, in order to uh, perhaps keep the lights on on the streets. So there are a whole range of these different types of, uh, of, of ways of generating um, electricity. Now, maybe we'll increasingly see people generating their own power, either through solar panels or, or, through, uh, or through wind farms. The other thing that I think we're starting to see happen more and more is significant improvements in electricity storage technology, particularly batteries. So we can, we can potentially see in the future I don't know, sports stadiums, factories, office blocks, homes, completely self-sufficient in power. And actually, that really does start to decentralize the energy market, because if there is excess energy being generated, then maybe there's a market for that excess energy that's much bigger than we see right now. So that really could start to change the way I think big energy companies that we see at the moment change the way that they operate. It really starts to challenge their business model. And they're what in essence is a monopoly in the way that they uh, generate and distribute electricity right now. Well, it's, it's really interesting. We've for years gotten used to the idea of ourselves, increasingly in the age of social media, gotten used to the idea of ourselves as being prosumers when it comes to digital content. And we, we realize we're that. Yeah. Imagine, though, if we all become prosumers of electricity, right? Sometimes we're consumers. Sometimes we're actually net producers of electricity because we're actually generating so much, we're generating more than we need. And then once again, the blockchain might factor into us being providers of energy to those who don't have enough while we have a surplus. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the other factor to, uh, to, to build into this conversation about, about energy as well um, is that, you know, by some estimates, we're going to need to quadruple the amount of electricity we generate worldwide mm. to support the increasing number of electrically powered devices, sensors that are, you know, that are likely, to be, uh, uh, likely to be created around the world. So we're obviously going to need to be able to do that in a way 
that is not damaging to the environment. So these kind of new ways of producing electricity, that kind of self-sufficiency on electricity, um, is almost absolutely crucial to the way that we might expect the world to develop technologically to retain it and improve its connectivity. And I think the other thing to play into that is that you know we have to be mindful that we think very much about the way that we're creating electricity generation from renewable sources. And we can see how that's also now an issue within India and China, so the two really big developing economies. But there are also whole swathes of the earth that actually are a long way from being able to afford some of those technologies. So you know, it maybe it becomes incumbent on a global level for the developed world, and, and, and you know, we must start to include India and China in that, I suppose, in the future, to increasingly produce electricity from um, more environmentally friendly means, such that we don't drive the world into some kind of climate change catastrophe, even though there may be some less developed countries uh, that we have to provide that little bit more time for them to come to the situation where they're looking at uh, environmentally friendly electricity generation. Right. Well, it's a, it's a big gap to fill when you talk about uh, all of the infrastructure that's going to be running off electricity in, in, the, in the very near future. It's interesting now, we've talked about energy, we've talked about transportation, we've talked about urbanization, and we've talked about the impact of artificial intelligence on the workplace, the impact of blockchain on the workplace, all of these different threads, as, as we discussed in the first show, for how the world might be different 25 years from now. How do you tie all these threads together? I think that's what the conclusion of the, of the book is all about, is how do you make sense of such a wildly composite picture of how the future might be? <laughs> well, what, what we've done is we've created what we feel is a list of critical issues, of critical domains that we think represent both challenge and opportunity to take us to a very human future. So the first is about extraordinary leadership. And that's leading in terms of understanding the potential nature of the change that we see, the pace and scale of change that we see, and helping then as a new type of leader, navigate people through this uncertainty. And, and I think there are some interesting challenges that we might expect leaders to be able to consider as, as we go forward. New leadership skills, maybe skills that we see in lots of different leaders, but we would expect increasingly to see in, uh, in, in one person. And part of that, I think, is that you know, we're so used to being quite clear about what the problem is, and we can probably come to some degree of agreement about how to address it. Increasingly, both those things become less certain. The solution becomes harder to find. Maybe we don't even know the problem. And that becomes the realm of wicked problems, and maybe they become the norm. So our leaders need to really understand the nature of the changing state and uh, you know, the changing nature of the problems that maybe we'll face. One of the other things that we think is going to be critically important is digital literacy. And that's not about coding. That's about understanding what kind of technologies and their potential are coming down the track so that we can prepare our governments and our businesses to take advantage of those new technologies. We've spoken a couple of times about education. So our education systems right around the world, including corporate learning programs as well as school and university, really need to understand the changing nature of technology and therefore its impact on work 
so that we can start training and educating people for a changing society, for a changing future, so that we're not preparing people during their 15 or 16 years in school and, and college uh, for a world of work that's 10 years old. Right. I think right. there's something about evaluating exponentials. And what I mean by that is it's really hard for governments and big business to move very fast. They tend to be really slow, quite conservative in evaluating what's coming. So we need to try and instill a sense of kind of urgency and experimentation so that you know, it's okay to look at this stuff and be seen to fail so long as we can put it in context. We've spoken a bit as well about the changing nature of the job market, and I think that changes the nature of employer responsibility as well. Not just potentially retraining people that work in our organizations for new jobs, also potentially retraining for jobs outside our organization, and also navigating the boundaries that that will start to exist even more than they do now when we bring new technologies in that allow us to monitor people in different ways. So we need to be really cognizant of people's uh, privacy, their rights, and the freedoms of the individual. Um, we also need to understand what it is we need to do to create jobs around the new industries that will start to emerge around some of these new technologies. What are the kind of uh, support that we might need to see? How do we create an investment-friendly environment for some of these new technologies? And for those that may be technologically unemployed, how do we invest in the job list? What might uh, guaranteed basic income schemes do? How might they work? And at the other end of the scale on, on uh, things like UBI, how do we change the nature of taxation to maybe reward the use of humans in our workplaces compared to increasing automation? I think we need to look at how some of these new technologies create new sectors and really start to think about what they mean for employment and what they need for jobs and for training and for education. Increasingly, I think we need to only look around the world to see the, uh, the increasing issue around mental health. So if stress, through, particularly through this transitional period, is going to become an increasing issue, then what about the support for mental health in society? What about increasing the number of therapists and counsellors so that we make sure we look after people's mental health as well as their physical health? I think in the first show, we touched on technological ethics. So, you know, how do we go about setting global standards and guidelines for the developments of new technologies? How do we think about the weaponization of AI and make sure that we continue to protect personal privacy? Importantly, I think if we want to create a very human future, how do we draw constructively on the past? What are the elements of what we've seen in human history that we want to preserve to create our and continue our kind of innate humanity into a very human future and into a very digitized future? And I think finally, how do we continue to create a dialogue? Well, I'm not sure about continue, but how do we build a dialogue and then make that live and, and run through this transitional period so that people can be fully engaged in what's changing, how it's changing, what the potential implications are, and importantly, what the opportunities are. So I think those are the 12 things that feel really important to, uh, to me um, and to us at Fast Future. When you, when you look at that broad kind of field of potential areas for disruption and, and areas that need to be addressed, areas that people need to think about and learn about, it's very interesting to me that big picture, technology has always existed to increase human capability. That's why we have it. We, yep. we, do it, we, we create technology to do things that we couldn't do before. And it, it could be that in the future, 
it's just recognizing that we've got to stay on that track, right? If we're going to if we're going to bring in new technologies, it still has to be geared towards making people better at what, at what they do, making them more capable, giving them more freedom, giving them more ability to interact with each other and with with their environment, rather than closing things off. And yeah. when, when when you talk about when you talk about reeducating leaders. Or, or just are actually creating a new kind of leader and re-educating people. It seems that those are all kind of connected, aren't they? That a new kind of leader and a new kind of education, those two things go hand in hand. Pete, we're going to have to think differently, ultimately, is, is what's going to have to happen. Yeah, the way that um, I quite often talk about that is, is the mindset challenge. So mm-hmm. if we think really about uh, what I would consider a, a sort of two choices. The first choice is we can play by the rules of the game that we've always played. But the thing is, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. But I think there are some plenty of examples that standing still just isn't an option. On the other hand, maybe we should be playing by the rules of a new game, maybe even creating the rules for a new game, because actually that's where the opportunity and the progress is. The issue here is, I think, that if you're a new startup business, if you really embrace the kind of the the foresight that maybe suggests that the world is going to be very different, then you've probably already got the innate DNA inside you that allows you to embrace those opportunities. But I think if you're a big, historically successful multinational corporation, that's really hard. You've got the spending power, maybe you've got the resources to to, to really look at what the business opportunities might be. But the thing is, have you got the underlying ability through changing the organization's DNA to really be radically different? And I think the, the jury's probably out on that. And, and one challenge for big organizations is, if you look at how long, the average lifespan of a corporation nowadays, it's about half what it was 50 years ago. If you right. look at the top of the major markets around the world, they're full of new types of company. They're probably full of companies that consider themselves digital. You know, they may make things. They may create and sell services, but fundamentally, they're digital services. And I think that mindset difference between I make cars, I make planes, I develop consulting services to I'm a digital company and think about the value that's within the data that I work with is a really different mindset. And I think that represents a really big challenge for both business and for government. Yeah, in both of those cases, the advantage belongs to those who can imagine what may be up for grabs, what may be completely different in the near future. And it's very hard for a a government institution, for a large corporation, even to imagine those things, much less to act on them, right? I I think so. And 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 maybe society makes it harder because, you know, we look to governments for stability, for certainty. There's something that's kind of inside a lot of us that says, you know, I, I feel much calmer if I'm much more certain about the way something will play out. And of course, the, you know, the investment community looks for a degree of certainty, a degree of comfort that the investment that, that I make is going to pay back in the way that I expect. So it's all about kind of risk mitigation. But we kind of need to change that mindset if we genuinely want to be more um, experimental in the way that we explore some of these opportunities. We need to create an environment that says it's okay to take a step back it's okay to take a risk the the kind of the the criminal act is not learning from the failure 
Um, and I think that will become increasingly important. And maybe that's one of those other things that becomes a much more fundamental issue of leadership than maybe we've seen in the past. So one final question for you, Steve. Are you optimistic? Do you think we'll put it all together? Or how's the outlook? How's the outlook? Well, I'm usually pretty optimistic. So uh, this just feels that it is a very big opportunity for the world. I think the other thing that says we will take it is, you know, <laughs> God help us if we don't, because you right. know, some of the fears, some of the dystopian fears that we've seen from uh, from futures work and maybe even science fiction in the past, you know, some of those things that the, the technologies that are in some of those movies are kind of there. You could almost touch and feel them now. Um, so I think that some way, somehow, and particularly given the amount of noise we're hearing about these issues, about how we create a very human future, about how we can use and deploy these technologies for the greater good, actually kind of fill me with confidence that we will find a way through. I don't doubt there's going to be a few hairy bits and pieces, you know, moments along the way. But, yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Well, same here. And the book, once again, folks, is called A Very Human Future, Enriching Humanity in a Digitized World. Steve Wells, best of luck to you with the book, and thank you so much for being with us this week. My absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Phil. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of The World Transform. We will be back next time with a brand new show. Thank you all for being with us, and until next time, live to see it. Mm-hmm.